0: NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Miles Parks. Good morning. Vice President Kamala Harris responds to a flurry of Supreme Court decisions this week.
1: It is about an attack on foundational freedoms and on the access to opportunity.
0: The VP sat down with NPR's Michelle Martin. We'll talk through the politics. A new proposal tries to prevent black lung disease in mine workers. Also, smoke is still hovering over parts of the U.S. We check in on where it's coming from. Plus, are you ready for July 4th? If you're having a cookout, you need a playlist. NPR Music has you covered. Tune in. It's Saturday, July 1st. The news is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The State Department issued a report yesterday on the 2021 U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan. It said the U.S. has not done enough planning before the Washington-backed government in Afghanistan collapsed, leading to chaos. The report blamed both the Trump and the Biden administrations, saying the decisions of both had serious consequences for the viability of the Afghan government and its security. The U.S. Supreme Court has wrapped up its term with two important decisions, one pitting the First Amendment against gay rights, and a second throughout President Biden's student loan program. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports.
3: Until this week, there'd been no oral dissents from the bench since 2019. Even last year, when the court handed down its decision reversing Roe v. Wade, the court did not convene to announce its opinion from the bench, the result being that dissenters were not allowed to make a public display of their disagreement. But this week, Justice Sonia Sotomayor spoke for the court's three liberals in both the affirmative action and gay rights cases, and Justice Elena Kagan spoke for them in the student loan case. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. It's July 1st when many new laws go into effect in several
2: states. In North Carolina, most abortions are banned after 12 weeks of pregnancy. A federal judge ruled the prohibition may take effect while a challenge is being litigated. As of today, Georgia will require some Medicaid recipients to get a job. It's the only state in the U.S. to impose a work requirement. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Jess Mador reports.
4: Rather than expanding Medicaid coverage as fully as federal law allows, Georgia's program limits the expansion to low income adults who complete 80 hours of work, volunteer, or other activities a month. Georgia officials say they expect 90,000 people to participate in the first year, far fewer than would be covered by the Fuller expansion. Health advocates have expressed concern that many qualified applicants in Georgia will have trouble satisfying the work mandates. In 2019, a federal court struck down a similar Arkansas requirement after 18,000 people lost their coverage. For NPR News, I'm Jess Mador in Atlanta.
2: Starting today, Maryland is allowing the sale of marijuana for recreational use. About 100 dispensaries are to open for business. Four of them are owned by Green Thumb Industries. CEO Ben Cobbler says it's the end of prohibition.
5: More than two out of three Americans support legal adult-use cannabis, and the folks in D.C. haven't quite heard that and haven't quite acted. Uh, But what we see here today, what we see around the country, is Americans are choosing cannabis for well-being. They're choosing it to feel better.
2: Anyone over the age of 21 can legally purchase marijuana. This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Leaders with the Massachusetts Teachers Association are calling the US Supreme Court ruling to strike down the student loan forgiveness plan a blow to social and racial justice. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the group links high levels of student debt with the nation's current educator shortage.
4: You need a bachelor's degree to get an initial teaching license in Massachusetts. But that license is only good for five years. After that, educators must qualify for a professional license, which requires a master's. For Chelsea first grade teacher Kyle McGee, that degree will require her family to take on even more student debt than they're already carrying. The price of the schooling that's required is really difficult, and I wish that there was like more laid out plans for how to avoid this kind of debt. McGee says the forgiveness program would have significantly reduced her husband's $50,000 student loan debt which would have made it easier for her family to afford her master's degree. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
6: Former Boston Globe Media Partners president Vene Mera is suing the company for more than $12 million. In a suit filed this week, he claims the parent company of the Boston Globe unlawfully fired him in 2020 and that he's owed more than $12 million in lost wages, commissions, and severance. Merrill alleges that management did not want to pay him his full commission after he succeeded in his role. He says the company fired him after he did not agree to a reduction in the commission. WBUR has reached out to the Globe for comment. This is Day 2 of Boston Harbor Fest. Events throughout the city today include live music, kids' activities, and a fireworks display on Long Wharf at 9.15 p.m. You can see a full schedule at bostonharborfest.com. An air quality alert is in effect until midnight tonight. That's throughout eastern Massachusetts and in Rhode Island. Widespread haze today, highs in Boston in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
5: WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moon thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, in for Scott Simon. Twice this week, major Supreme Court rulings brought President Joe Biden in front of cameras. First, after the ban on affirmative action in college admissions. And then yesterday. Let me begin by saying I know
7: there are millions of Americans, millions of Americans in this country who feel disappointed and uh, discouraged or even a little bit angry about the course decision today on student debt.
0: And I must admit, I do too. To discuss the political implications of these decisions, NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us now. Hi, Ron. Good to be with you, Miles. Yeah, thanks for being here. So this is becoming a little bit of a trend, the Biden administration versus the Supreme Court. How much of a blow were these decisions to the Biden administration?
5: They are surely a blow to the Biden administration on several fronts, but these blows will be felt far beyond the Biden administration. For example, there's a direct challenge here to Biden on student debt relief, but the real impact will be on students with debt. The decisions also run counter to administration policy on the rights of same-sex couples, but the real impact is on those couples who will no longer have the full rights of a protected class. The rights they thought they had been granted by earlier Supreme Court decisions. And on affirmative action, the real targets here are the policies of public and private college campuses. And and Miles, the thing people forget about affirmative action is that it's not just about the person who's applying and trying to get into a school, It's about the schools themselves and the nature of the education that's being offered and the values the schools represent. And for several decades now, racial diversity has been built into those values by affirmative action. And what the court is saying here is that the way that was done, at least at Harvard and University of North Carolina and other schools, itself constitutes racial discrimination.
0: You kind of touched on this a second there, Ron, um, a second ago there, Ron. But these issues are very polarized many of the issues that the court uh, ruled on this term what does all of this say about America more broadly in this moment
5: we are in the midst of a broad culture clash and it is largely a generational clash at the risk of oversimplifying this is between the America of older primarily white Americans many of them attached to formal religious traditions and younger much more diverse Americans young people people who perhaps have less of a commitment to traditional, formal religious traditions. Uh, The court here is speaking for one side of that clash and for the side that's resistant to the trends that they see in American life. Uh, Yesterday, we saw former President Trump and his chief rival for the next Republican presidential nomination, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. They were both at a rally in Philadelphia uh, competing for the support of more traditional Americans. Moms for America was the group they were talking to. Trump said he would root out diversity programs in the government. He would use the Justice Department to get rid of them. And Florida Governor DeSantis has made such programs the essential target of his campaign and his governing in Florida. So we see this generational difference on other issues as well, such as the use of religion to justify refusing service to a same-sex couple who wanted a website for their wedding. Uh, This is a generational war, even on the issue of debt cancellation, because there's resentment not just between generations, but also between those who do and don't get to go to college.
0: We saw a real galvanizing effect from voters after the Dobbs decision last year, Ron. Do you think things like affirmative action, uh, student debt relief, are these things that will have a similar effect with voters?
5: Not to the same degree. Dobbs still looks like the big motivator. Uh, Polls tell us that maybe 60% or more of Americans are basically okay with legal abortion within some limits. Uh, The numbers just aren't that big in support of affirmative action and not that big in terms of same sex marriage rights or the separation of church and state. Those issues are a little bit more difficult to sort out. They are real, but they just don't have the same degree of salience as abortion and they don't affect nearly as many people.
0: Ron, can you talk a little bit more about how Republicans this week have been responding to these Supreme Court decisions, the Republicans that make up the the field for 2024?
5: The 2024 field is in competition with Trump, but they're not really in opposition to Trump. So like the former president, they were all in with praise for these court rulings. There's a core conviction among them here that they're just doing the right thing. And the court is upholding them because the court is doing the right thing.
0: NPR's Ron Elving. Thank you so much, Ron.
5: Thank you, Miles.
0: Inflation is cooling off a bit, but prices do continue to climb, and many Americans are looking for ways to cut corners. According to the Commerce Department, personal spending rose just one-tenth of one percent in May. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on how price-conscious folks are coping.
8: Ruth Adamski has always been frugal, she says, so when the Bristol, New Hampshire resident reads advice columns about how to save money, most of the tips are things she's already doing. Adamski, who relies on Social Security, keeps a tight lid on her grocery bill. She typically cooks meals from scratch rather than buying pricey prepared foods.
9: The day
10: before yesterday, I made six dozen potstickers and put them in the freezer
9: for whenever.
8: Adamski has also cut back on buying books and magazines, and she's skipping this year's Comic-Con convention, even though she already has a homemade costume inspired by a favorite Star Wars character.
10: I belong to a Facebook group for Kylo Ren costumes, And you haven't lived until you've seen a bunch
11: of guys saying, how do you put a zipper in a sleeve?
8: Stocks zipped up yesterday on hopes that inflation might be cooling off. The Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped 285 points. But underneath the costume, the picture is not so rosy. So-called core inflation, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, remained stubbornly high in May. That's the figure that's closely watched by the Federal Reserve. Electricity prices have jumped nearly 6% in the last year. As the summer heats up, Rebecca Viverka is looking for cheaper ways to stay cool.
11: I've been shopping around trying to find cheaper electricity and just been keeping the windows open as much as I can, hanging out in the basement if I can, just as every little penny counts with the energy prices being as hugely inflated as they have been.
8: Viverka, who lives in Parma, Ohio, has also started shopping at a discount grocery store going without her favorite sparkling water, and juggling streaming services to cut her cost for televised entertainment.
11: Rather than having Netflix and Disney Plus and Peacock and five others that are must-haves, I've canceled all of them and I'm only using one at a time. So right now I have Peacock, so I finished Poker Face. It's probably time to move on to, I guess I'll watch Ted Lasso. That one's on Apple Plus.
8: The Commerce Department says many people are making more money. Personal income rose faster than spending in May, so many people were able to save more. Viverka used some of her savings to pay down credit card debt, which has grown increasingly costly with rising interest rates. The average interest on credit cards now tops 20%, a record high. While pinching her pennies, Viverka opted not to visit a friend in Washington State this year. She is planning a trip to Myrtle Beach, though, later this summer to see her parents.
11: I've been putting off, but I managed to find a pretty decent airfare later in August through the you know, economy, Spirit Airlines, which it gets me there, I guess.
8: Airfares have fallen in each of the last two months, thanks in part to lower jet fuel prices. Overall, Americans spent less money on stuff in May, but more money on services like travel and entertainment. Adamski, the retiree in New Hampshire, keeps a positive attitude about coping with inflation on a fixed income. It's all about setting priorities, she says. If there's something she really wants, she'll find a way to cut spending elsewhere.
10: You make choices with what you have available to you. I don't feel like I'm suffering. I mean, why should I? I have six dozen Chinese pot stickers in the freezer. I'm rich.
8: That kind of attitude may come in handy during what's turning out to be a lengthy battle to put inflation itself on ice. Scott Horsley, NPR News.
0: The Federal Mine Safety Agency, after decades of stalled attempts, has a proposal to tighten rules about how much harmful silica dust mine workers can be exposed to. Justin Hicks of WFPL in Louisville, Kentucky, reports the dust causes the deadly black lung disease. So the proposal has victim advocates celebrating.
12: For years, Fonda Robinson watched her husband struggle for breath. He worked in coal mines and was diagnosed with black lung disease. She remembers the first time seeing the silica in her husband's lungs on an x-ray.
3: One of the pulmonologists showed me, he said, you see that? And he, he said, it
2: looks like slivers of glass, don't it? I said, yes, it does. And I mean, all
3: that is,
12: is just going in there and cutting. Robinson learned that the silica comes from drilling into the rock that surrounds coal. She also learned that mine workers are legally allowed to be exposed to silica dust levels twice that of any other worker in the nation. She wanted to change that, and eventually became vice president of the National Black Lung Association. After years of fighting, she now has something to celebrate. Yes, and I'm so happy. (laughs) I'm so happy. She's happy because on Friday, after decades of reports, promises, and false starts, The Mine Safety and Health Administration released a proposal to put silica exposure levels for miners, coal or not, in line with all other workers in the U.S. Here's Imsha Assistant Secretary Chris Williamson. All miners deserve this level of protection, and they deserve to have their health prioritized. The law is very clear about that, and I think that just makes a lot of sense on a personal human level. The rules would require routine medical testing of workers at all mines, not just coal. Williamson says the government wants to know more about their exposure to silica dust, too. We know some of these things in coal because of that, the, the existence of those surveillance programs, and those things don't exist in metal nonmetal mines. If the proposed rules go into effect, companies will need to find ways to limit exposure with measures like giving miners quality respirators or limiting their time exposed to silica, some of which many companies are already doing. Once posted in the Federal Register, there will be a 45-day comment period on the rules. For NPR News, I'm Justin Hicks in Louisville.
0: You're listening to NPR News.
6: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the latest on Canada's extraordinary wildfire season. It's causing problems in many regions of the U.S. In fact, fires have led to an air quality alert in effect until midnight tonight in eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Widespread haze today in Boston, highs in the upper 70s. Widespread haze tonight, lows in the mid 60s. For tomorrow and Monday, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, highs in the low 80s, and looking ahead to the holiday. On July 4th, a mostly sunny Tuesday with highs in the mid-80s. It's 66 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite program. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
2: I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. More violence was reported overnight in several cities across France. Protests began Tuesday after a 17-year-old of Algerian descent was shot to death by police during a traffic stop. The UN is ending its peacekeeping mission in Mali, which has been attempting to protect civilians against an Islamist insurgency since 2012. The country's military rulers have now demanded the peacekeepers leave since they brought in Russian mercenaries and representatives of Hollywood actors and the Hollywood studios have agreed to extend their contract through July 12th. It had been set to expire last night. This avoids a strike, at least for now. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. It has been a bruising year for the Biden administration at the Supreme Court. Last year at this time, the Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade. Just this week, the court strikes down affirmative action in college admissions, turns back the administration on student debt relief, and restricts LGBTQ rights. Vice President Kamala Harris was in New Orleans this week, and she sat down with NPR's Michelle Martin. Michelle joins us now to talk about that conversation. Good morning, Michelle.
9: Hey, good morning, Miles.
0: Great to have you here. So tell me a little bit about why the vice president was in New Orleans.
9: Well, she was a featured speaker at the Essence Festival. It's one of the largest, they would say the largest, music festival in the country. And people come from all over for concerts and fun, but also for panels and networking. I mean, and this was a crowd that was really excited to see her. A lot of people said that they identify with her and they want to support her. It's a logical place for her to be to sort of establish herself as a major player. Well, her message was that people should celebrate and have fun and enjoy each other's company. But she also had a pretty sobering message that people's fundamental rights are at stake. She said that democracy is fragile, that what happens in the U.S. has implications all over the world, and that these recent Supreme Court decisions in particular made it clear that people need to vote up and down the ballot and, as she put it, fight for the future we deserve.
0: Well, that was her message from the stage, but you sat down with her after. Tell us a little bit about that interview.
9: Well, you know, she clearly seemed to be reveling in the fact that this is a very supportive crowd and she seemed to be enjoying herself. But her comments, as I said, were very sobering. Here's a little bit of my conversation with her. On the way down here, the plane was filled with people coming here who were so excited to be here, to be part of this. Mm-hmm. For many people, it's an annual event. Right. And yet the contrast of these consequential decisions that were so upsetting to so many of the people who participate in an event like this. And I'm just wondering how you're holding both of those thoughts in your head at the same time.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. They're almost conflicting emotions. But I I would suggest that in any moment where there is um, great challenge, moments of great consequence, and and, and moments of crisis, or crises, in the case of even just these three decisions from the Supreme Court, um, I think it's important to have the natural and appropriate emotion about what those decisions might mean, and to also be joyful about coming together with people who share your life experience and um, and and with whom there is some commonality of approach and perspective and experience, and all of those can can be true at the same time. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, today just being here. After these decisions, and you know, on the heels of the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, there's a lot to talk about. There's so much at stake, and that's why on the stage, um, you know, last time last year when I was on the stage, it was more kind of a fun interaction, and and we designed it that way. But today it was quite serious because this is a serious moment and um, fundamental issues are at stake, and I do believe that there is a, a, a national um, movement afoot to attack hard-won and hard-fought freedoms.
0: So, Michelle, you can hear there that she views this as a real fight, essentially. How does she fit into that as vice president? Well, I
9: have to tell you, Miles, that her answer surprised me a little bit and that she didn't so much frame this as part of her responsibility as vice president. She said that it was her responsibility as an American. Take a listen.
1: I have a role as an American the role I think we all have as people who love our country and understand what is at stake and and as people who believe in the promise of our country but understand we have some work yet to do to fully achieve that promise. I think about my role as Vice President of the United States and what that means both in terms of the bully pulpit that I have um, and, and the responsibility that comes with that to hopefully inform folks of, of things I might be aware of but also to elevate public discourse and hopefully cut through the the misinformation.
9: And as you might imagine, Miles, she also called on the people there to vote, but also to remember to vote up and down the ballot.
0: That's NPR's Michelle Martin. Thanks, Michelle. You're welcome. Something like 500 wildfires continue to burn across Canada, and it's affecting the air we breathe. Earlier this week, the air quality in Toronto was among the worst in the world. And many Americans in the Midwest and on the East Coast continue to endure hazy, smoky conditions. Canadian journalist Sheena Rossiter is in Edmonton, Alberta, and she joins us now. Hi, Sheena. Hi. So give us the latest. What's the latest on these wildfires in Canada?
14: Well, this continues to be the worst wildfire season on record due to the unseasonably hot and dry conditions across the country. In Western Canada, where I am, we typically have fires this time of year But what's unusual is that there have also been fires in eastern Canada, like the province of Nova Scotia. And now what we're seeing is how bad it's getting in Quebec. And what's making these fires unprecedented this season it's both the amount of fires, but also the area that's being burned. And that smoking smoke is impacting people well beyond Canada. It's so far-reaching, in fact, that NASA satellites have even captured smoke from Canadian wildfires going as far as Portugal and Spain. Wow. So smoke is still, yeah, and smoke is still blanketing the Midwest and East Coast, and that's coming from wildfires in Quebec, where there's some 71 active wildfires that are still burning, and that's where about 2,300 people have been evacuated from their homes.
0: Yeah, I have to admit, we've been going through this for weeks here in D.C. My dog is not thrilled about it, but how long are these (laughs) expected to last?
14: Well, this is just the start and wildfires are normal in Canada this time of year, but just not at this scale. So fire season typically starts as early as May, which it did this year with fires here in the province of Alberta. And it goes all the way until October, or at least it can go until October. Mm. And fire season peaks in about July or August when the country's experiencing the hottest weather. So this, as I mentioned, this is the worst fire season on record. So far, about 20 million acres of land has burned, which has surpassed the number of burns from 2021 and 2022 combined. And with temperatures expected to soar throughout the month of July, well, fires are more expected to only get worse.
0: And what is the effort to fight them look like? I mean, how is this going for the firefighters?
14: Well, since May, close to 1,500 firefighters have come from around the world, 10 countries in total, to the provinces of Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia to help put out some of these fires. And the latest foreign pack of firefighters arriving from South Korea, which is sending 151 people to put out the blazes in northeastern Quebec. And these wildfires, they're really causing significant damage to the affected areas across the country.
0: Any health advice from... Canadian officials on what they can do to protect against this this bad air quality
14: yeah and today's a significant day here in Canada it is Canada Day and many Canadians are taking this national holiday to get outside and celebrate with their friends and family but in some parts of the country It's not safe to do that right now. So some outdoor activities in places like Montreal have been cancelled due to poor air quality over the past few weeks. And uh, health officials are basically encouraging people to wear N95 masks if they do want to get outside. And that's if the air quality index is over 150, then you should be masking up with an N95 in order to be able to breathe okay.
0: That's Sheena Rossiter in Edmonton, Alberta, joining us on Canada Day. Thank you, Sheena. Thank you. Next week, millions of Americans will celebrate the country's independence exactly as our forefathers imagined. Everyone knows that the first rule to a good party is a good playlist. So to help us all out ahead of Tuesday's big day, let's bring in NPR Music's Stephen Thompson. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Miles. So we called you here to help us out with our barbecue playlist. We're not looking for Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. I'm not sure. looking for Lee Greenwood. I want to think outside the box. What do you got?
7: Well, I like the idea of a themed barbecue. Just a few weeks ago, I attended a barbecue that was billed as a Barbie- uh, in honor of the forthcoming Greta Gerwig directed Barbie movie. It was also Pride Month and so they kind of combined the two ideas which were already pretty close cousins and put together uh, you know everybody dressed as Barbie or Ken there were pink drinks with glitter the whole works really excellent excellent party and the playlist was full of kind of pride themed songs songs from the soundtrack (laughs) to the upcoming (laughs) film Barbie and also of of course, Aqua's eternal 1997 hit, Barbie Girl.
12: Come on Barbie, let's go party. <laughs>
7: So one of the nice things about the Barbie Q idea is that you can really musically take it in so many different ways. There are songs coming out on that Barbie soundtrack. In fact, there is a version of Barbie Girl performed by Nicki Minaj and Ice Spice. Uh, there, there are other songs kind of trickling out as they, as they market that film. But also, like, I think it should be the law that Pride Month should extend into July 4th weekend. And so anything you add on your Pride playlist is going to work well on a Barbie playlist
0: makes complete sense and then i feel like yeah you get extra credit barbie american icon but also the barbecue pun did you bring any other barbecue puns here uh, to weekend edition
7: miles you know i did <laughs> i would also suggest you could throw a bar bq uh, and celebrate american excellence by playing the music of the great american original beyonce <laughs>
0: Bring the hive to the barbecue, I love it.
7: A bar, B-E-Y-Q. You can take the complete collected works of Beyonce, play them in any order you want, because this is America. And uh, really, we could drop the needle absolutely anywhere. It's Beyonce, you know Beyonce, you love Beyonce. Let's hear a little bit of Countdown, what the heck. You know, I was whiteboarding this this whole thing, trying to come up with as many barbecue puns as possible. We could also do a barb B Q and play the entire collected works of Barbara Streisand.
15: And we got
16: nothing to
7: but if you did that, I think you have to play them in exact chronological order because I think she's a stickler.
0: The vibe of that barbecue, I don't know. I just I'm trying to imagine it.
7: There'd be a lot of stillness. But in all seriousness, though, when I think about great barbecue music, I have lived in Washington, D.C. for 17 years now. And when I think of kind of the sounds of a summer in D.C., I think about go-go music. Mm. Um, you know, funk with certain kind of rhythms attached to it. A go-go-themed barbecue, pull out your Chuck Brown records, pull out your Rare Essence, Trouble Funk. My favorite go-go song is by the group E.U. They have a song uh, called Debut. Butt. Uh, that is has been a source of complete joy in my life for, like, 35 years. I just would love to have a barbecue soundtrack entirely by EU. In fact, we will call it a barbecue.
11: I
0: feel like I can, like... I'm like pantomiming flipping burgers, like kind of like doing my like <laughs> head nod with it. I've got like 15 to 20 people around me drinking some beers. That is good, 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 good barbecue music.
7: I mean, GoGo is perfect for any barbecue, but let's be honest, the air quality in DC right now, I will probably spend actual July 4th like dragging a kiddie pool into my living room and watching <laughs> Queer Ultimatum with my family. Uh, but let's pretend that I am throwing the barbecue of my dreams.
0: Well, we appreciate it. Steven Thompson, Playlist Wizard from NPR Music. Thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you, Miles.
0: This is NPR News. A new children's book transforms a sad, scared, and anxious little boy into a superhero. The book is called Cape, in honor of the bright red cape the little boy wears and finds comfort in following the death of his father. Cape is Kevin Johnson's debut picture book, and it's vividly illustrated by artist Kit Thomas. And they both join me now. Hi, guys.
13: Hi, it's nice to meet you. Hey,
0: thanks for having me. This whole book is unique because it is about grief, right? And I can't remember another book that is so specifically about this. Is that why you wanted to write this book? You know,
17: I wrote this in the in the middle of the pandemic, actually right after my father passed away. And uh, while his death wasn't unexpected, I still was really struggling to come to terms with it. And so at that same time, I started to read about all these children who had lost their caregivers as a result of uh, COVID. And that's where Cape really, the genesis of where it came from.
0: I want to focus in on this one spread that I think to me is the most striking moment of the book, which is the boy is at the funeral reception and the adults are kind of sharing memories and clearly processing the loss that they're going through. But then you turn the page and the little boy just says, I don't want to. Kit, can you describe what this page looks like for listeners who don't have the book in front of them?
1: So this page has the boy
9: curled up and a blank space with the words, I don't want to, just very bold caps, fonts. I wanted to show us a glimpse of the void that he feels and the loneliness in this
12: moment.
17: You know, he's hollow, he's empty, and has no way of really... to terms with the emotions he's facing And, and i think that's what a lot of us can relate to when we're dealing with grief it's it's you know not really knowing what to turn to uh to come out of that
0: i think i come away from this book based on the illustrations in your dedication at the end that this is about a father figure in this boy's life but you never name the relationship or the character who this boy has lost why not I felt
17: like it was important for this to be a universal story, accessible to everybody who's lost someone. I didn't want to limit it and make it so specific. Yes, the dedication of my dad is there, but I, I thought about, like I said, all these children who lost, you know, aunties and uncles and grandparents and, you know, or maybe it's just a cousin, you never know what it is. But hopefully then, when they're, they're reading the story and they're, they're sort of following along this grief journey, they can plug themselves in and find
0: a sense of hope themselves. Kit, can you talk about how did you work on getting the cape to be this its own kind of being?
9: Yeah, uh, so I sort of wanted the cape almost to sort of go through a journey with our main character. Personally, I was also a really big fan of comics, and I know that's something that kids can relate to. And when you're a kid, sometimes you can escape into Like so many different worlds. When you're having these moments of grief, sometimes when you're not taught how to process things, you know, the media that you can consume almost becomes like a teacher for you, if not almost like a person who can also comfort you. Kevin,
0: where do you see this story going from here? How does this kind of grief journey for this little boy continue after the book? We go from
17: the Outer reaches of space to the depths of the ocean, and then we, we find our hero, you know, soaring at the very end with a, a new uh, vision on how to remember their loved one. And so the, the grief journey, I don't think it really ever does end um, for a lot of people, but I think it changes. It changes from uh, maybe reluctance to think about things to then embracing thinking about those same things.
0: That's author Kevin Johnson and illustrator Kit Thomas. Their new children's book is called Cape, and it's out now. Thank you guys both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today is the first day that Massachusetts residents without legal immigration status can apply for standard driver's licenses. People applying for a license now can provide the Registry of Motor Vehicles with a foreign passport or consular identification document. Boston Harbor Fest continues today. Events throughout the city include live music, children's activities, and a fireworks display on Long Wharf at 9.15 tonight. This year's festival celebrates the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. You can see a full schedule at bostonharborfest.com. Wildfires in Canada are creating problems in eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island today, An air quality alert is in effect through midnight. The forecast for the Boston area calls for widespread haze today and highs in the upper 70s it is 66 degrees in boston this is 90.9 wbur
3: we're funded by you our listeners and by the cape playhouse in dennis village now playing sense and sensibility up next the tony award-winning musical jersey boys tickets at capeplayhouse.com ocean state job lot Valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive, OceanStateJobLot.com. And Mayor's Office
13: of Arts and Culture with Boston Urban Pride's Music and Arts Fest, July 2nd at City Hall, LesbigayUrbanFoundation.org.
8: On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He
10: said, how well can you spit? Ooh. And I just found, it coming out of my mouth, I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. Hell <laughs> <That laughs> yeah,
8: I'm Peter Sagel On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Eliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR.
18: Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at BankofAmerica.com BankingForBusiness and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is
0: Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. It's been two and a half years since Joe Biden was elected president of the United States. But the false idea that his election was somehow illegitimate is still flourishing in many places, thanks in large part to a woman named Cleta Mitchell. If you don't remember Mitchell, she's an election attorney who was a central player in former President Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. She was on that infamous phone call when Trump pressured Georgia election officials about the state's results.
3: But the people of Georgia and the people of America have a right to know
10: the
0: answers. Now, Mitchell hosts a podcast about voting.
10: Hello.
11: Welcome to this episode of Who's Counting with Cleta Mitchell. This is a podcast
0: and in an, an odd twist, the fringe conspiracies on her show are now pushing Republicans to abandon one of the best tools out there to catch voter fraud. It's known as the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC. And I've spent the past few months embedded with NPR's investigations team, looking at the far-right's effort to blow ERIC up. Here's Mitchell on her podcast again.
10: ERIC is a very insidious organization.
0: And this is weird. Only nerds who write about elections like me and nerds who run elections think about Eric. Kathy Buchvar used to oversee voting in Pennsylvania as the secretary of the Commonwealth. Was this the thing that was kind of in the conversation at all when you were secretary of state?
1: Eric specifically? Yeah. No. Honestly, nobody knew what Eric was.
0: Eric is a voluntary partnership. It allows states to share information about their voters. It enables the people who run elections to know when their voters move or die. It's also the only way states have to flag if someone votes in more than one state, which is illegal. For a while, everyone loved it. Well, almost everyone. Cleta Mitchell has spent the past year working to dismantle Eric.
10: We need people to tell their legislatures and tell their state election offices to stop sending the data, to just withdraw from Eric.
0: Now, election deniers have been trying to change every part of how America votes. They want to get rid of voting by mail, voting early. They want to move back to hand-counting ballots, even though it's less accurate. But the reason the attack on Eric matters even more is because it's working. Iowa Secretary of State is recommending the state leave an organization it once
19: praised. Florida and two other states are pulling out of what's called the Electronic Registration Information
0: After a decade of uneventful collaboration, Eric is teetering on the brink of collapse. At its height, Eric had 32 members. Now eight states and counting have pulled out, all Republican. Our investigation shows a conspiracy theory that started on a far-right website is now driving the political party bent on catching voter fraud to destroy one of the only tools states have to catch it. It helps to know a little bit more about how ERIC works and how it started. 15 years ago, a man named David Becker was working at the Pew Charitable Trusts. His team got a bunch of voting people together and just asked them, what can we do to make elections better? Every single election official we asked. Uh, back in 2008, said voter registration. The federal government had begun requiring states to keep statewide voter lists, but it felt impossible to keep them up to date. Our society is highly mobile. About one-third of all Americans move within any given four-year period. And millions of people die every year, too. All that makes planning where people should vote, or how to get information to them, really hard. Because the addresses voting officials have on file are often wrong. For voters, That can mean longer lines, and even mail ballots getting sent to the wrong places. Eric solved two problems for election officials. First, it pulls data from a bunch of different sources, like state DMVs and the Postal Service. Second, it sifts through that data and spits out reports that election officials can use to keep their voting rolls up to date. It allows states to tell with almost certainty which voters are which, whether... John Doe in one state and John Doe in another state are the same John Doe. And they can tell the state with the older record that John Doe has moved away, and the state with the new record that you've got a new voter and you should reach out to them make sure they know they can get registered to vote. The system helped update voter rolls, which attracted Republicans who have long prioritized cleaning up America's voting lists. But it also required states to reach out to eligible voters who weren't registered yet, which appealed to Democrats. And states also use it to prosecute the small amount of fraud that does happen every federal election. You know, the good news is that kind of crime is rare, but we take it seriously. This is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. I talked with him about Eric for a while in February.
18: I mean, the little secret is that maybe more than 10 years ago, if somebody voted in Ohio, and Florida, and Arizona, and Texas, you would have never known. There was no way to catch that unless they went out and bragged about it. And so with Eric, we can
0: compare our voter rolls to those states. So Eric was considered a success and growing until January of last year. The first crack in Eric surfaced with a press release in Louisiana. On January 27, 2022, the Republican Secretary of State, Kyle Arduin, announced that Louisiana was putting its membership in Eric on pause, citing concerns raised by, quote, citizens, government watchdog organizations, and media reports. That announcement shocked the voting world. Arduin declined to be interviewed, but understanding why he made his decision helps to make sense of this whole Eric story. Remember his reference to media reports? Well, roughly a week before Louisiana's announcement, a prominent far-right website called The Gateway Pundit published the first of a series of articles about Eric. The website's founder, Jim Hoft, summarized the key points in an interview with Steve Bannon.
17: It was meant to be a voter cleanup organization. And what it is, is actually just a membership organization for the blue states, the left-wing
20: organization. And, And what they do is just register people.
0: NPR's investigations team analyzed hundreds of thousands of social media posts and found that the first Gateway Pundit article was the moment when far-right interest in Eric really took off. But the bigger question is still, why is a guy like Kyle Arduin, who's worked in elections for more than a decade, making policy decisions based on articles in the Gateway Pundit? And to try to find that answer, we head to a town hall event in Houma, Louisiana.
6: It's my honor to welcome each of
0: you here. Arduin said little publicly about his Eric decision last January. But our investigation found he did bring the announcement to perhaps the only constituents at that time who would even care. We the people, the Bayou chapter.
7: I've been communicating with individuals from we the people
18: from all across the state on a regular basis. It is phenomenal to have citizen activists.
0: The group is one of several chapters in the state and one of hundreds of grassroots organizations across the country motivated by Trump's voting conspiracy theories that have popped up since 2020. They're part of a new election denial blueprint that helps propel fringe ideas into government action. When Arduin announced his decision to withdraw from Eric, the room cheered.
18: This week, I sent a letter to the election registration information
5: Center. Suspending Louisiana's participation in that
0: program. Yes. Arduin was gearing up to run for re-election this year. And Ohio's Frank LaRose noted that after the Gateway Pundit article, Eric had become a key topic in Republican primaries, where candidates cater to the diehard members of the party. You could see where somebody who's out there trying to prove their conservative
18: bona fides in a primary, which is what you do, would read this article and say, "Okay, that thing is bad, let's get our state out of it. But hopefully over time, the noise about this starts to die down and other states look to get back into it. Remember
0: that last thing LaRose just said? We'll come back to it. After Louisiana pulled out, the second domino to fall was Alabama.
20: Saw what happened in 2020 around the country, and how disturbing that was.
0: This is Wes Allen, at a campaign event in his race for Secretary of State of Alabama. Early in his primary run last year, he promised that the state would pull out of Eric on his first day in office if he won. That promise came a week and a half after the Gateway Pundit article, for those keeping track at home we started hearing it on the campaign trail too. When I would travel and these voters would be at these particular meetings that I would go to, this subject matter came up. But when we got into the actual problems with Eric, Alan told me it wasn't really about that. One issue that keeps coming up is this alleged connection to George Soros. The liberal billionaire is at the center of a lot of false right-wing and anti-Semitic conspiracies. The initial Gateway Pundit article calls Eric Soros-funded in its headline. And when Allen made his announcement, he said, quote, Soros can take his minions and his database and troll someone else because Alabamians are going to be off-limits permanently. But when I asked him about that accusation, he backed off it. I mean, it's maintained now by the states. But it really doesn't matter, in my mind, um, who funded Eric. You know, we're still not going to participate in it. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a leftist group or right group, whoever. We just feel. And, you know, I heard loud and clear on the campaign trail that the people of Alabama want their data protected. Just to be clear, the Soros-funded Open Society Foundations has given money to Pew Charitable Trusts, which helped develop ERIC. But there's no evidence that Soros has ever had any involvement with ERIC. The data security concern Allen mentioned comes up a lot, too. But Eric encrypts all the sensitive data it gets from states, like dates of birth and the last four digits of social security numbers before it even analyzes them. Something that became more and more clear as I talked to Wes Allen was that this was a political decision. So Allen was out. And for a while, it looked like the bleeding might stop with those two ruby-red states. Louisiana and Alabama. But under the radar, a powerful pressure campaign was still building, which is where Cleta Mitchell comes in. She's the Republican lawyer trying to take down Eric. Mitchell declined to be interviewed for this story, but her podcast has become a hub of anti-Eric messaging. Since 2020, she's also built a network of local election integrity groups. And our investigation found that these sort of groups mobilized to distribute talking points on ERIC to state lawmakers and election officials across the country. Mitchell has also met with red state officials on ERIC, including Florida's secretary of state.
1: It's a dear friend and a real friend of election integrity, and that is Cord Byrd.
0: Even before he was secretary, Mitchell said Byrd joined her weekly election integrity calls.
1: You've had such a great uh, open, open door and willing right. to listen, and you are very much appreciated.
0: Byrd declined an NPR request for an interview, but this spring, he announced the state was pulling out of ERIC, along with Missouri and West Virginia. The state cited data privacy and partisanship issues with the organization, but they all joined voluntarily years ago and didn't voice any issues until the far right started targeting it. Shortly after, more red states dropped out too. Virginia, which was a founding member and joined under a Republican governor. Iowa and Ohio.
18: But I can tell you that it is one of the best fraud-fighting tools that we have. It's a tool that uh, has provided great benefit for us and we're gonna continue to use it.
0: That's Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, also in February. You've already heard him praising Eric a lot in this story. So what changed? He told me Eric was dismissing the concerns of Republican states. But he was adamant the misinformation campaign did not influence his decision making.
18: Wild ideas about conspiracies of, you know, data leaking out the back door and secret funding sources and and all that kind of stuff. I've rejected all of that. And what we've said all along is that
0: this organization needs to be more accountable. It's worth noting that Ohio was an Eric member for six years and these concerns didn't come up. LaRose is also widely expected to make a run for U.S. Senate. He's not the only Republican who satisfied the base by pulling out of Eric and is now eyeing a promotion. In Florida, Governor DeSantis, who appointed Cord Byrd, is running in the Republican presidential primary. The secretaries of state in both West Virginia and Missouri, Mac Warner and Jay Ashcroft, have both announced runs for governor. The day Missouri pulled out... The Gateway Pundit reported that Ashcroft told them before telling the public. For the record, Eric is still standing, though with less shared data and higher costs for remaining members. The partnership still has more than two dozen member states, including a few Republican states like Georgia. Its Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger, told me that this mass exodus will mostly be felt in the places that left.
8: It actually hurts that state more than it hurts us. So they just basically indirectly said we're going to have dirtier voter rolls over there.
0: Brianna Lennon is a Democrat who runs elections for Missouri's Boone County. And she said that will certainly be the case where she is. Her office has relied on Eric Reports for information on voters who changed addresses and voters who died in other states. Now, they'll be waiting for returned mail.
11: The little yellow sticker that says this person is now living in Georgia or something like that.
1: That's what we'll have to go back to using.
0: As she looks ahead to 2024, Lennon says she's worried about the accuracy of her voting list for that election. But she's just as worried about the power of the election denial movement that targeted Eric.
11: I'm sure there are going to be ripples that come from this particular move, and I'm not exactly sure what the end will be. I don't think that this is the, I don't think this is an isolated thing.
0: And one final note, remember Louisiana's Kyle Arduin, the first official to pull out of Eric? As we finished reporting this story, he announced he was no longer running for reelection. At a voting event this spring, he said reasoning with people who believe conspiracy theories feels like a losing battle. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio, and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
6: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Just ahead on 90.9 WBUR, more coverage of the Supreme Court's major decisions. And start your Sunday tomorrow with Weekend Edition here on WBUR. You'll hear about threats to election workers. You'll also meet an artist who's just turned 100 years old and is still painting. It is 66 degrees in Boston with an air quality alert in effect until midnight tonight, widespread haze today, and highs in the upper 70s.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com.
0: Hot dog eating contests have become almost as quintessential as fireworks on the 4th of July. And competitors are serious about the battle for the top spot.
12: I had my tonsils out last September, so there's a lot more space in terms of just like airway ability. I'm Scott Detrow, a visit to a competitive eating contest and a broader look at why we do this. That's
17: on
0: the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm
7: WBUR House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org.
0: WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Miles Parks, good morning. It was a big week in the Supreme Court. We'll debrief and take stock of the term with our own Nina Totenberg. Also, the standoff in Hollywood takes a new turn. The actors went to the brink of joining the writers on strike, but have extended their own contract negotiations a little longer and singer-songwriter Jenny Lewis on bringing layers of meaning to what sound like lighthearted tunes.
15: People have asked me, oh, is this your Margaritaville? Is this like your Jimmy Buffett influence song, which absolutely I love Jimmy. But I also think it is perhaps the saddest song I've ever written.
0: It's Saturday, July 1st. The news is next.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A funeral is wrapping up in a suburb of Paris at this hour for a 17-year-old who was fatally shot by a police officer earlier this week. His death sparked riots for days. Rebecca Rossman has more.
19: Today's funeral has brought a sense of calm for now to the western Paris suburb of Nanterre, which has been the epicenter of this week's protests. This is where the 17-year-old, identified only as Nahel M., was fatally shot by a police officer after being stopped for running a red light on Tuesday. Locals told NPR they were still in shock and hoped today's memorial service would provide some closure. Riots continued across the country for a fourth night. The government has repeated calls for calm, deploying more than 45,000 police officers overnight. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Nanterre. According to German
2: authorities, the unrest has prompted French President Emmanuel Macron to postpone a planned state visit to Germany. Vice President Kamala Harris says freedoms are at stake, following a series of Supreme Court rulings on a wide range of issues. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, Harris touched on abortion rights, gay rights, and other issues, while speaking with NPR's Michelle Martin at the Essence Festival in New Orleans.
12: Following a discussion on maternal health and reproductive rights, Harris spoke to NPR about Supreme Court rulings related to LGBTQ rights and affirmative action. Harris also noted that these latest rulings related to personal freedoms come just after the anniversary of Roe v. Wade being struck down.
1: This is a serious moment, and um, fundamental issues are at stake and I do believe that there is a a national um, movement afoot to attack hard-won and hard-fought freedoms.
12: The Vice President implored citizens to vote, noting that Congress can restore rights that have been weakened or stripped away by the High Court. Dave Mistich, NPR News.
2: A law banning most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy is taking effect in North Carolina today. A federal judge ruled yesterday it may go ahead while the issue is being litigated. It takes effect as the Southeast region faces a growing number of abortion restrictions. NPR's
4: Sarah McCammon has more. North Carolina's Republican-dominated legislature pushed the 12-week abortion ban through in May after overriding a veto from Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. The ban includes exceptions for pregnancies resulting from rape or incest, some medical emergencies, and for certain severe medical problems involving the fetus. Cooper signed a separate cleanup bill this week. It passed with support from Democrats who said it would make some aspects of the law less burdensome for patients and providers. Among other things, the new legislation clarifies that medication abortion is permissible through 12 weeks of pregnancy. Sarah McCammon, NPR News.
2: This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. New England has continued to experience impaired air quality from wildfires burning in Quebec. That situation could occur more often with climate change. Abigail Giles reports
4: the province is seeing its biggest fire season since officials started keeping track in modern times. Drought in the northern boreal forest in May allowed dry lightning to ignite more than 100 fires there in a day. Melanie Morin is with the organization that fights fires in Quebec. She says the burning forests are full of old growth trees where the canopy is very thick. It's quite flat It makes for a fertile
13: wildfire country, if you will, uh, flat ground that our fires can, can run on long distances of lots of fuel to burn.
4: Morant says fires are starting earlier in Quebec and burning longer. And it's hard to say when these ones will go out. Climate change is making Quebec's forests drier in the summer, making the fire season longer. I'm Abigail Giles.
6: Abigail Giles reports for the New England News Collaborative. A Lexington biotech company is set to dissolve only two years after it went public. Cytere Therapeutics said yesterday that it would stop development of its only drug. It's a clinical stage drug for ovarian and other solid tumor cancers. In January, the company laid off 70 percent of its staff, around 35 people. Boston classrooms used for summer school will now be air conditioned. The district paid for the nearly 4,000 AC units with $7 million of federal relief money. And officials say the installations were completed this week. The Boston Globe reports that Boston public school leaders committed to this in 2021, the hottest summer on record, that year only 29 out of 63 buildings open for summer programs had air conditioning. This afternoon in Toronto the Red Sox play the Blue Jays. Last night the Sox won 5 to nothing. Tonight the Revs are in Cincinnati. It is 66 degrees in Boston and an air quality alert is in effect until midnight tonight. Widespread haze in Boston and highs in the upper 70s. This is WBUR.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Thanks for being with us. The US Supreme Court has wrapped another eventful term. This week alone, it struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and ruled in favor of a designer who didn't wanna work on wedding websites for same-sex couples. In addition, it ruled against a controversial legal theory that would have given state legislatures nearly unchecked power to determine election rules. For some perspective, we're joined now by NPR legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. Thanks for being here.
3: My pleasure.
0: So let's take a big view. What stood out to you this term?
3: Well, you know, I look back and last year I and every other reporter covering the Supreme Court was saying that Chief Justice Roberts no longer was in control, that he was no longer the center of the court and he didn't control the institution the way he once did. But he did this year. In in decisions conservative and not so conservative, he was the controlling factor. And he seems to have, at least for this term, who knows what will happen next term, reestablished his chiefship, if we can call it that.
0: (laughs) One of the things that stood out to me is when I'm not hosting this program, I cover voting for NPR, and there were a number of democracy-related cases that came before the court this term. Can you talk us through what happened in those and whether there will be ramifications for the 2024 presidential election?
3: Well, if we look at the democracy cases, if we can call them that, that was the Alabama voting rights case in which the court, by a 5-4 to vote, and with the chief justice writing the opinion, he preserved the last shred of real enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, at least in places that are polarized racially. And the Republicans could lose two or three congressional seats from that because of the way the state legislature had gerrymandered out most of the blacks in the state into one district and left the rest with no real power. And so now there will be a second congressional district with probably majority black or close to majority black. And that same situation will be replicated in some other states like Uh, Louisiana, potentially Georgia, and others. So that will have an effect. Um, The independent state legislature decision, which sort of shot down the most extreme version of that theory, which holds that only the state legislature can make rules and regulations and draw districts uh, for congressional seats. And instead, the court shot that very extreme version down, said that state courts could conceivably overstep their boundaries, but they didn't say how. And so those are some of the areas where it will have a political effect.
0: It feels like almost a laundry list of very polarized issues that the court took on this term. And that meant some strong disagreements between the court's conservatives and liberals. What's the latest with how the judges are sort of getting along these days?
3: Well, they're not warm and cozy. And the conservatives, then there are six of them. It's a supermajority, but they all seem to have a desire to be sort of the the ideological leader of the court, and they have very different views. They're all conservative views, but they're very different methods of reasoning and and conclusions. So you'll see these cases like the affirmative action case. Well, the chief justice wrote the majority opinion and then three other conservatives wrote separate opinions. They didn't disagree with what he said, but they wanted to get in (laughs) their two cents worth. And that is not sort of a consensus building kind of a place, I think.
0: Well, and you notice something in the Supreme Court um, opinion, right, that kind of seemed to Lend some, lend some light into how the judges are getting along. Can you talk us through that?
3: Chief Justice Roberts, at the end of his opinion, striking down the student loan forgiveness program, wrote, It has become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions with which they disagree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary. And then he goes on to say, we didn't do that in this student loan case. We used the traditional methods. But he's basically replying to Kagan, who accused the conservatives of abandoning any judicial modesty or restraint. And replying to Kagan's uh, dissent, which was an oral dissent from the bench, he wrote, we have employed the traditional tools of judicial decision-making reasonable minds may disagree with our analysis. In fact, at least three do. We do not mistake this plainly heartfelt disagreement for disparagement. It is important that the public not be misled either. Any such misperception would be harmful to this institution and our country. You know, we haven't had any oral dissents from the bench until this week. I'm told that all during the pandemic. There were people who wanted to dissent from the Dobbs case. They wanted to read it from the bench, but the other members of the court said it wasn't possible. We were still didn't have a public in there. We only had the the press corps and whoever was arguing a case. So then you move on to this year, and we haven't had any dissents from the bench until this week and the affirmative action case. And then we had more today one in the gay rights case from justice sotomayor and one in the student loan case from justice kagan it's not unusual for justices to say mean things about each other in oral dissents from the bench or in written copy this roberts addendum is not for the members of the court it's for the public
0: hmm. so uh, outside of the opinions there have been a lot of stories over the last couple months about the justices and their relationships with conservative billionaires. What's the latest there?
3: The chiefs keep saying we're working on an ethics code or suggesting that. Mm. But what we hear is crickets. And I think that's probably because he can't get everybody on the court To sign on and you really need everybody because if two or three justices say excuse me I'm an independent justice I don't have to do that I think that's unconstitutional I think it's wrong then you don't have an ethics code you have to have everybody on board and clearly he doesn't
0: NPR's Nina Totenberg Nina thank you so much you're welcome Mourners gathered in the western Paris suburb of Nanterre to pay their respects to the 17-year-old boy who was shot by by a police officer this week after being stopped for, for running a red light. Reporter Rebecca Rossman is in Nanterre. She joins us now. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So it has been four nights of protests and rioting across France. Thousands have been arrested. And now this funeral. Tell us what it's like there.
19: Well, it's a closed funeral, but I did see some people filing into the cemetery earlier. It's a rainy and quiet morning here, and I have to say, quiet feels a bit unusual for this suburb right now, given all that has happened since Tuesday when the shooting took place. I spoke to one young woman. Her name is Shireen, and she's only 19 years old. She told me she knew him. In fait, quand
14: c'est ça touche à notre ville, c'est pas pareil qu'on le voit la télé chez les autres que
19: quand nous. So what she's saying, you know, it's one thing when you see this kind of stuff on TV, but it's totally different when it happens in your own town. And she also described the boy as someone who was always smiling, never in a bad mood, just really a joy to be around.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about him. What else has come out uh, in in the last few days?
19: Yeah. He's being referred to in the media as Nahel M. Uh, No last name has been given. We know that he was of Algerian and Moroccan descent, and he was brought up by a single mother. His mom, Munya, has told the media that they were extremely close. And he was working as a food delivery driver. He was also training to become an electrician. He was enrolled at a nearby university, but didn't regularly attend classes. And he didn't have a criminal record, but he was known to police for several traffic violations in the past. He was also part of an integration program for struggling teens looking to gain work experience. And the head of that program described Nahel as someone who really fit in and just wasn't the kind of kid to get in any trouble.
0: A lot of people have been referring to this incident as... France's essentially George Floyd moment. is, Is that an apt comparison?
19: Yeah, first just to remind people, George Floyd was the black man killed by a white police officer in 2020, which set off a series of major protests across the US. What I've been hearing from a lot of activists in particular Uh, They take some issue with that comparison, actually, because they say it makes it sound like people in France are just waking up to issues like systemic racism and police brutality, when this is something that they've been signaling for years, if not decades. But I think what they hope is that the greater public is becoming more attuned to what they see as a culture of impunity within the police force. And they hope that this will start a greater conversation.
0: Any idea on whether these protests are expected to continue into the weekend and into next week?
19: Yeah, I think we can definitely expect that. There were 1,300 arrests made uh, last night alone. That's up from 900 arrests the previous evening. That being said, the government has deployed 45,000 police officers across the country to quell protests. And the government is warning young people, especially, to stay at home. The average age of the arrests made on Thursday night was only 17 years old. Some were as young as 13 years old. So the government has repeated calls for calm, but especially given that it's the weekend now, It's likely there will be more activity on the streets this evening.
0: That's reporter Rebecca Rossman in France. Thank you so much, Rebecca.
19: Thank you.
1: Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station.
0: You're listening to NPR News.
6: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about five minutes, you'll get the story on the state of training for medical students to care for people in the LGBTQ community. And keep in mind, wherever the summer takes you, at the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed download the WBUR app today. It's 65 degrees in Boston and air quality alerts in effect until midnight tonight. Widespread haze in Boston today with highs in the upper 70s. I'm
14: Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it and
11: thanks. Just go to WBUR.org.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. Welchforbes.com.
2: I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. The State Department has issued a report on the 2021 U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan. It said the U.S. had not done enough planning before the Washington-backed government in Afghanistan collapsed, leading to chaos. The report blamed both the Trump and the Biden administrations. A truck rammed into several vehicles and ran over pedestrians in western Kenya last night. Police say at least 48 people were killed. And a bus crashed and burst into flames early this morning in western India. Police say 25 people were killed. They say most of the deaths were the result of the fire. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth Mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters or at smartmouth.com. From Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. It's still unknown if Hollywood actors will find a deal with major studios and streamers or decide to go on strike. The contract of their union, SAG-AFTRA, was supposed to end at midnight, but they've decided to keep negotiating. We're joined now by NPR's Mandalique Del Barco, who's been covering the story from Los Angeles. Good morning. Good morning. So there is a new deadline now, July 12th. What does that tell us about where these negotiations stand right now?
10: Well, you know, we don't know the details because there's a media blackout by both sides, SAG-AFTRA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. They've been in talks for the past few weeks and members already overwhelmingly voted to authorize a strike if necessary. A few days ago, more than a thousand big-named actors from Meryl Streep to Pedro Pascal signed a letter urging negotiators not to cave. And that letter was also signed by the president of sag After Fran Drescher, who you may remember starred in the 1990s sitcom The Nanny. well, Drescher went on TV's Good Morning America this week, she was asked if they were making headway in the contract talks. You know, in some areas we are, in some areas we're not. So we just have to see. I mean, in earnest, it would be great if we can walk away with the deal that we want. Last night, Drescher sent a message to members saying that no one should mistake the extension of the contract for weakness. Also, a note here for full transparency, many of us here at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but broadcast journalists are under a different contract than the film and TV performers, and we wouldn't be expected to go on strike if one's called.
0: So if the actor's do end up going on strike, they would be joining the Hollywood writers. Has anything changed in those negotiations?
10: The Writers Guild of America says they've been ready to continue talking with the studios and streamers. They began their strike on May 2nd, but it does look like they probably will be waiting until the actors' contract gets resolved. Meanwhile, a lot of actors have already been picketing outside studios in solidarity with the writers. The last time the Hollywood writers and actors were on strike at the same time was in 1960. Back then, there were just three broadcast networks. SAG hadn't yet merged with AFTRA. The Screen Actors Guild was led by a studio contract player named Ronald Reagan, decades before he would become the country's president. Those strikes were fights over getting residuals when movies got aired on television.
0: So what are the actors asking for now? I mean, what What are some of the things that they want out of this new contract?
10: Well, they're asking for more residuals when the streaming platforms replay the shows and the movies they're in. And they also want regulations and protections from the use of artificial intelligence. Actors worry that their likeness will be used by AI to replace their work. This week I met Vincent Amaya and Elizabeth Mahalik. They're background actors, basically extras who are in the Actors' Union. And they're very worried about studios and streamers replicating their work with AI.
17: What they started doing is putting us into a physical machine, scanning us, and then using that image into crowd scenes. And if a movie wanted to do crowd scenes, they would hire us for a good two, three weeks, maybe a month. However, if they're scanning us, that's one day
10: they kind of tell people like, well, you have to get scanned and we're going to use this forever and ever. You know, it's a perpetual use contract. They say losing work days means less pay and they may not qualify for the union's health care and pension
0: benefits. That's NPR's Mandalit Del Barco. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Medical care for the LGBTQ community has become politicized in this country. But at the heart of it, there are thousands of people who healthcare advocates say are not getting the care they need. They also say that medical students are lagging behind in getting the training they need to care for the LGBTQ community. To understand better what it is that medical students and patients need, we turn to Dr. Alex Kuroglian. They're a psychiatrist and director of the Division of Education and Training at the Fenway Institute. Alex, welcome.
21: Thank you for having me.
0: So in 2014, the Association of American Medical Colleges released a call that said to U.S. and Canadian medical schools, essentially, they need to provide better training for LGBTQ people. Has there been an improvement over the last 10 years?
21: There has been some improvement. We have a long way to go. Certain medical schools have really picked up that call, and other schools have done less. And there's also variation across coursework the core clinical clerkships where people rotate through, say, surgery and internal medicine and pediatrics and psychiatry and OBGYN, and then advanced courses. So there's a lot of
0: variability across the country. Tell me what, in a perfect world, academically, what this would look like.
21: From the time medical students arrive in their first year, in every course that they take, wherever there's an opportunity or need to frame medical education in a way that's inclusive of the needs of all sexual and gender diverse people, that would be happening. There would be clinical opportunities to engage with a high volume of LGBTQI plus patients. There would also be involvement of LGBTQI plus community members in teaching the medical students. For example, with patient interaction simulations, we would have people with authentic LGBTQI plus identities with whom students could do histories, perform physical exams, and then get feedback about how culturally responsive they were being, and a way to process microaggressions and other challenges that come up.
0: How is the current situation, this disparity between doctors who have this training and most of those who don't, how does that actually affect patients?
21: LGBTQI plus people have negative experiences accessing healthcare, either being mistreated overtly and denied care in many cases, and that's well-documented, even harassed within healthcare contexts, or being given care that's not skilled and technically harmful to the patient, they may avoid going to seek care or returning after they have an initial experience because they don't feel safe.
0: On first glance, some people may think, well, this is more of like a social issue, but I could totally imagine it at a time when I've gone to the doctor, the moment a doctor says something that kind of contradicts my personal experience, even not on purpose, like I immediately kind of am skeptical of the entire experience.
21: Yeah, absolutely. There are two parts to it. One is culturally responsive care, things like working through our own implicit bias against LGBTQI plus people sensitive and effective communication, how to apologize when you make a mistake. The other piece that's not unrelated to that is that I'll often hear doctors say things like, well, I treat everyone with respect. I treat everyone the same. The reality is to treat certain populations with respect and to provide high quality care, we don't do exactly the same thing we do for everybody else. It needs to be patient-centered, tailored, and population-specific.
0: I wonder how politics play into this issue just in terms of um, all the states that have been making inroads to ban gender-affirming care. Does that affect how colleges see whether it's necessary or even whether it's potentially allowable to teach medical students and physicians to care for this community?
21: It definitely does. I'm in dialogue with colleagues in various states and Texas and Mississippi and South Carolina and Florida, who have had their programs shut down that were running for a while within academic medical centers, who've been told that they can't keep doing what they're doing, and frankly, who are asking me what job openings there are in Massachusetts right now. And it's also having an effect on medical students deciding to pursue much needed careers in, say, gender affirming care for transgender and gender diverse people.
0: I guess look ahead at the next 10 years. Do you feel like this is a short-term problem, or is this something that's going to take decades to kind of get to where where you want it to be?
21: This is definitely a backlash to enormous progress that we made in recent years. I didn't necessarily expect it to be as widespread, well-organized, and violent in opposition to the health rights of transgender and gender-diverse people as it very tragically is right now. That being said, this is within medicine and science— extremely fringe opposition to care, but that is what's being centered within policy. So we need to be vocal as the medical profession, as medical educators. We can't stand on the sidelines in this case. And I think if we're unified, vocal and persistent, we can counteract this.
0: Dr. Alex Karoglian is the director of the Division of Education and Training at the Fenway Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And now it's time for sports. Shohei Ohtani, he can do it all. The Tour de France begins today, and a tennis star announces a comeback. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us now. Good morning, Michelle. Hey, Miles. So, otani let's just start there he hit another homer last night i think it traveled like 500 feet i just watched it right before (laughs) we went on the air earlier this week pitched a game that he won hit two home runs in that game and the reason this is interesting is he is up for a new contract at the end of this season what are we expecting when otani hits free agency
11: it's going to be crazy miles you're right he hit his 30th homer On the season last night the first MLB player to 30 home runs this season struck out 37 batters last month we are witnessing history and as you mentioned the best baseball player in the world is having a career year and he's a free agent this winter and remember baseball doesn't have a salary cap so owners with deep pockets who need help think somebody like the Mets Steve Cohen Is someone who could very well be all in on a once in a lifetime player. Now, Otani's teammate, Mike Trout, has actually guesstimated this for us, and he thinks he gets 500 to 600 million (sighs) on his next contract. But Miles, I would not be shocked if it goes higher than that. Otani and the Angels play the Diamondbacks again tonight.
0: Wow. Um, Let's turn to cycling. The Tour de France, the premier event in that sport, begins today. Defending champion Jonas Vingegaard is favored to repeat, but the focus this week has been on safety. Why is that?
11: Yeah, for a very good reason. Um, You know, this is the premier cycling event on the calendar. It starts today, but there are new concerns over rider safety. There was a fatal crash last month on the, the Tour de Suisse. That's a Switzerland tour, of course. A Swiss rider, Gino Mater, died after he crashed at high speed with an American rider, Magnus Sheffield. Now, Miles, part of the issue here is just technology. The bikes are so much faster, right? Mm. These guys are still jam-packed into those Pelotons. They're all jockeying for position at really high speeds. And there are a number of analysts who say that this year on the Tour de France, riders are going to be a lot more cautious, especially... Especially on those descents we'll see what happens this is the premier cycling event of the calendar the final stage wraps up July 23rd
0: and the premier event on the tennis calendar is coming up too Wimbledon starts next week but this Mm. week the biggest news in tennis was elsewhere Caroline Wozniacki the former world number one player who retired a few years ago she announced she's making a comeback any idea when when she'll be back on the court
11: Yeah, you know, this is just great news uh, for tennis fans. She's targeting the Canadian Open in August and then is planning to play the US Open. That's awesome news for tennis fans here in the United States. You know, Fans are obviously applauding her return, but women in sports are cheering it on too. So many female athletes see having a family as com- as incompatible with chasing their dreams on the court, and that's one of the reasons that Wozniacki took that hiatus 3 years ago. She's had two kids since. She's seeing Serena Williams as one player who showed it was possible coming back after having her first child, and Wozniacki says she wants to be a part of changing that paradigm. You know, it doesn't have to be an either or conversation, Miles
0: and then finally i want to touch on this great story this week from the european athletics team championships there was a shot putter who was thrown into a different competition can you tell us more
11: yeah it's it's so wild i used to run track in high school and this is just a, 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 an unbelievable situation but yes the team's shot putter for team belgium stepped up and volunteered to run the 100 meter hurdle race after they had a couple runners go down to injury the team risked disqualification if they didn't field anyone, so she took one for the team. Her name is Yoli. I spoke to her at her home in Ghent, and she told me she was happy to do it, but she's now focused on making the Paris Summer Games next year. Miles, in shot put. This is not a new career for her. <laughs> okay. She's sticking okay. See, to yeah, shot yeah, put. Okay, yeah, yeah, that
0: makes sense. Uh, Michelle <laughs> Steele of ESPN. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A beach in Yemen is one place where residents of that country can find a bit of relief despite nearly a decade of civil war. And there are some prospects for peace now that fighting has slowed. NPR's Fatma Tanis takes us to that beach in the city of Aden.
4: It's a sweltering evening in Aden. Waves lap gently at the sand as families watch the sunset and swim in the Arabian Sea. I meet two teenage girls who are taking selfies. In between fits of giggles, they tell me about life in Yemen. 14-year-old Zainab loves it.
19: Life is good in Yemen. I think it's the best country in the world. I don't feel like leaving it to go anywhere else. I want to stay here.
4: We're only using their first names at the request of their parents who have jobs where they usually don't speak to the press. Zainab's cousin Hanan, who is also 14, agrees. Yemen is amazing. But, she says, there are a lot of things that could be better. (laughs) It's too hot for one. There's no proper electricity, everything is expensive, and she would like it to be safer. Aden is calm these days. The fighting in the last few years has mostly been in the north of the country. But memories of the terrible war remain fresh in people's minds. In 2015, the Iran-backed Houthi militia fought for control of the city, but were pushed back north by the Saudi-backed government coalition forces. But for many Yemenis, like Mohammad al Sadi, the war still isn't over. Do you feel like the war has ended? No. He's sitting with his wife and toddler on a beach towel, snacking on fruits and sweets.
5: We have to hope that things get better. But it's difficult. There's a long way to go.
0: We need genuine intentions by the parties in power
17: and good governance
0: that doesn't exist.
4: Al Saadi hasn't received his salary at his government job since February of this year. It's a big issue all over Yemen as resources have been poured into war. Yemen has oil reserves, the country's main source of revenue, but it's unable to export it because of a Houthi embargo.
0: The people of Yemen are tired of this war, but the parties are only thinking of themselves. No one is thinking of the Yemeni people.
4: At a cafe by the beach, I meet Basmal Ali. He's the manager of the beach resort. He used to live in Louisiana, but moved back to Yemen to take care of his parents. He says, Most Yemenis aren't able to come to places like this and enjoy a moment's peace by the beach. The majority of the country lives under the poverty line. Access to food and water remains critical. And while people here are relieved that the war has slowed down, it's not clear what happens next. Ali says the future doesn't look promising. He says Yemen is two different countries now between the South and the North. A unified
14: Yemen, I believe it's Hard After this mess and this uh, war, it's
17: impossible.
4: Despite ongoing peace talks between the ousted government backed by Saudi Arabia and the Houthi rebels backed by Iran, Yemen will remain deeply fragmented and in need of reconstruction.
14: Yemen
3: lost its dignity in this war, from this conflict. There's no winner.
4: Ali says the world has already stopped paying attention to what's happening here. And without help, things could get tougher in this divided, impoverished country, even if the war ends. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Aden, Yemen.
0: This is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The former Boston Globe Media Partners president is suing the company for more than $12 million. Vinay Mara filed suit this week. He claims the parent company of the Boston Globe unlawfully fired him in 2020 and that he's owed more than $12 million in lost wages, commissions and severance. WBUR has reached out to the Globe for comment. Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara and her seven-year-old son are recovering after their car crashed into a house in Jamaica Plain yesterday. Lara's office says her son was treated at Boston Children's Hospital, where he received several stitches. In Boston today, it is the 18th annual Chinatown Main Street Summer Festival. The free event features a range of food, live entertainment, arts and crafts and cultural celebrations. The festival runs from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It is Red Sox, Blue Jays in Toronto this afternoon, and tonight the Revs are in Cincinnati. It's 65 degrees in Boston, and air quality alert is in effect until midnight tonight throughout eastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Widespread haze in Boston today, highs in the upper 70s. This is
10: WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers.
8: On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark.
10: They said, how well can you spit? Ooh. And I just found, it coming out of my mouth, I said, oh, I can hawk him with the
8: best. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. <yeah. laughs> I'm Peter Sagel On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR.
18: Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Air is still hazy in much of the country due to wildfires in Canada. But many workers don't have the option to stay inside. And as NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, there aren't many federal protections for them.
16: The summer's just giving way, and activists are already on the radio to warn farm workers about the heat. That's Jose Martinez. He's a farm worker in Washington state, telling listeners to watch for signs of heat stress, like sweat, nausea, and heart palpitations. Two years ago, during a heat dome in the Northwest, farm workers died from the heat. After that, Washington mandated strict rules for additional breaks, shade, and water for workers. At the federal level, there are few protections. But the Biden administration is trying to fix that.
0: Addressing heat illness is one of our top priorities.
16: That's Doug Parker, who leads the Federal Agency for Workplace Safety and Health.
12: So many workers who are disproportionately affected by heat are low-wage workers who have jobs outside. They're
0: often immigrant workers, workers of color.
16: And now states like Texas and Louisiana are experiencing record-breaking heat. Parker's starting to get reports about worker fatalities.
17: I've had a, a couple of them come into my inbox in the last week, sadly.
16: Parker says employers should be providing similar protections like those in Washington for workers from the heat. There are also air quality alerts in northern parts of the country, such as Illinois, New Jersey, and New York, and workers have needed to adjust. The New York Farm Bureau is turning to bilingual posters to show workers ways to protect themselves, like wearing a mask properly. Steve Ammerman is the communications director.
12: We
17: definitely are encouraging um, everyone to to take the necessary precautions to make sure that they stay as,
7: as safe as possible.
16: Officials are urging people to stay inside, but farm workers often don't have that option. The federal government is currently not considering a smoke rule. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington.
0: As we look ahead to July 4th festivities, it's also worth looking back on how this nation was built, in large part through the labor of enslaved people. Slavery is often thought of as the distant past, but make no mistake, it is still enmeshed in American power structures. An extensive project released by Reuters this week identified over 100 American politicians whose ancestors enslaved people. The list includes lawmakers, living presidents, governors, and Supreme Court justices. We're joined now by Reuters editor Tom Lassiter, who led the project. Welcome to Weekend Edition.
20: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So your project found that of the 536 lawmakers sitting in the last Congress, at least 100 descended from slaveholders. And of that group, that included a quarter of U.S. senators. Were you surprised by these findings?
20: Those numbers are, as we point out in the story, very much an at least number Mm. um, to arrive at a high degree of confidence that that sitting lawmaker descended from the ancestor in question we built family trees starting at the present day person to their initial relative on the 1950 census and sort of built back each rung back to that the 1860 census.
0: Do we have any sense on how voters feel about this information?
20: Sure. As part of the project, we did a, a national poll that looked at many sort of aspects of this. But, but one of them was... Would knowing uh, that a politician was a a direct descendant of of an enslaver affect their choice to vote for them or not? And this survey found that almost a quarter of respondents, 23%, said that knowing a candidate's ancestors enslaved people would make them less likely to vote for that candidate. And that number rose to 31% among respondents who identified as Democrats and 35% among black respondents. But it's important to note That you don't know from that how important that single issue would be and whether the voter would ultimately vote for that candidate. There are many, of course, many other issues on on which voters decide whether to vote or or not for, for candidates.
0: Were you worried at all in the beginning or as you were working on this project that this is sort of implicating these people for actions of people that came in many cases well over 100 years prior to them?
20: No one living today is responsible for the institution of slavery in in America. And at the outset of the conversation, I would tell them, I'm a direct descendant of at least five people uh, who uh, enslaved others in in Georgia. And so I'm sort of very aware that they are not, of course, directly responsible for what their ancestors have done. The idea was, let's have a conversation about what this means for you as a, a leader in America, as someone engaged in conversation, debate, legislation, on on issues having to do with the, the legacy of, of slavery. And you know we go in presuming that most of them didn't know this fact. Certainly after we reached out to them they, they knew.
0: Were you surprised at the volume of lawmakers who didn't respond, who didn't want to engage with you all on this subject?
20: I was. I thought there would be more engagement. I expected there to be kind of an initial pause as they sort of process the information again we put a real priority on uh, you know personal delivery of it and sort of talking it through in in a, in a cover letter that walked through sort of the the nature of of, of the project uh, trying to make clear that again this was not a, a gotcha but but hopefully a, a place from which to have a conversation
0: so the majority of lawmakers, involved in this story did not respond or engage with you all but to be fair some did and i was especially struck by the response from democratic senator tammy duckworth can you talk a little bit about what she said
20: senator duckworth was aware of these ancestors had not known that two of them had enslaved people and the senator said you know look i'm i'm a member of the daughters of the american revolution you know i talk publicly about the fact that i have uh, ancestry reaching back that far that I have an ancestor who fought in the American Revolution. If if I'm going to talk about that part of my family history and I'm going to talk about that connection between my family and American history, I, I must also, you know, be willing to to confront, you know, directly and squarely this facet of, of my family's history.
0: Stepping back, what does all this data say to you about the American power structure, or what are what are some kind of bigger takeaways that you take from this data?
20: Well, I think about it in terms, again, to to use the word conversation, it's a time of renewed debate about slavery and its legacy in in America. And many of these U.S. political leaders have staked positions on policies related to to race. And, And at the center of that, of course, in America today is a question of how this history should be taught, right? Not just in a classroom to our children but in terms of understanding it as a nation ourselves, So something essential to that process, of course, is knowing the facts.
0: That's Reuters editor, Tom Lassiter. Tom, thank you so much for joining us.
20: Thank you for having me.
0: For most of her life, Jenny Lewis has been performing. She started as a child actor. Then in her 20s, she got into music. And if you, like me, went to high school sometime between, say, 1998 and 2010, there's a good chance her voice appeared on a lot of your mix CDs. She was in a band called Rilo Kyler. And And in the two decades since, she's put together an impressive solo career. Joy All, her fifth and latest solo album, came out in June and she joins us now. Hi, Jenny.
15: Hello, Miles. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. So I kind of wanted to start there with like this idea that you have been making music for like 25 years professionally. And I was just thinking like, you're a very personal songwriter, very intimate songwriter. What is it like to have basically like a public diary of your entire adult life just kind of out there?
15: Well, it's become less embarrassing over the years because I've learned how to accept the former incarnations of myself. So some of those lines from the early Rilo Kiley records, there's a, a song called Glendora that was always a, a favorite and, and people would yell it out at shows, but it's got some pretty embarrassing lyrics in there, but I'm okay with it now.
0: <laughs> that took time to kind of uh, come to terms with.
15: Yeah, and I think, you know, when you make art for a long period of time, you learn to appreciate the beginnings because they led you
0: to where you are now. Well, let's listen to a little bit of the new album. This is a song called Apples and Oranges.
15: He don't kiss me Cool.
0: He just isn't oh, and so this song kind of compares two different relationships um, and like so much of this record it's kind of imbued with this sense of somebody who has uh, for lack of a better phrase kind of gone through it.
15: Well, th- this is an interesting song because I started writing it before I recorded my last record on the line. So it began out of a, a, an early breakup. And, and then when I brought it into the fold for the batch of songs for Joy All, I updated the bridge and I changed the sentiment where it's neither nor. One type of relationship isn't necessarily better than another type of relationship. And there's uh, joy in the failures as well as the successes.
0: One of my favorite things about your last few solo records is the love songs and the songs about relationships are not about young love. They're about, like, love as adults in, in a lot of different instances. I think it's on Giddy Up where you say we're both adults. Is that an, an explicit decision to kind of write, to chronicle how romance has changed as, as you've gotten older?
15: Yes, and, and there's a sense of accountability as well. You know, I, I'm not the victim in these songs. You know, we're both adults. Uh, you know, I made a conscious decision to be here and that that song is actually about cognitive dissonance as well where you know you have to get on your pony and ride but maybe you're not ready to do it yet and it just trips me out.
0: Okay, let's turn now to, I think, my favorite song on the album called Puppy in a Truck.
15: Like a shot of good luck, I got a puppy in a truck. If you feel like giving up, shut up, get a puppy in a truck.
0: I have to admit I'm biased here because I also got a dog and a car in the last couple of years and they have made my life much better. But tell me about yours. Tell me about the puppy and the truck.
15: Uh, Well, I have a, a cockapoo called Bobby Rhubarb and a truck. And really it's just a recipe for allowing the simple joys in life to help you out. And that song is like very light and people have asked me, oh, is this your, you know, Margaritaville this is just like your Jimmy Buffett influence song, which absolutely I love Jimmy. But I also think it is perhaps the saddest song I've ever written.
0: Really? The
15: bridge is so sad, I, I truly get so emotional every time I sing it.
0: That's so interesting because that's exactly where I was going to go because it has this clear parallel to the line off the Voyager. When I look at myself, all I can see, I'm just another lady without a baby. And the way you sing it in that song, that still punches me in the stomach 10 years later since that song came out. But the way you sing I Ain't Got No Kids on this song, it almost sounds celebratory. So tell me how your feelings on all this stuff have changed or have they not changed? Just where where are you at with all this stuff?
15: Even in Rilo Kylie, I think we... Did this thing where, you know, the lyrics were dark at times and sad, but the music was sort of upbeat. So I think that's something that I've been playing with for for many years. And yeah, those two bridges are, are linked. And I think your feelings change about all of these things that are deemed important in one's life. So that, the bridge on Puppy and and a Truck, it's kind of like my Annie moment. It's kind of like, it's a hard knock life. Like I imagine myself, you know, little orphan Annie just lacing up my boots.
0: You know, this album, the constant theme I kind of picked up throughout listening to it was just this kind of feeling of not giving up and continuing to try to find joy, for lack of a better word.
15: Well, I've always been a survivor. So I think in order to do that, You have to be an optimist. You have to believe that you're going to get through it. And I've had so many eras of my life where I've started over. When I retired from acting at 19 years old or started a band or started a solo project, a relationship. So I think in that perseverance moving forward, there's just this element of hope. And where there's love.
0: That's Jenny Lewis. Her new album, Joy All, is out now. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
15: you.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, and thank you so much for having me the last two weekends. Scott Simon is back next week.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is NPR.
6: Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Next at 10 o'clock, wait, wait, don't tell me. 66 degrees in Boston and an air quality alert is in effect until midnight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, honoring artists who banded together more than 40 years ago to buy an old warehouse and form the first artist co-op building in Massachusetts. See art commemorating the co-op at 249 A Street on view now at Atlantic Wharf Gallery, fortpointarts.org and SunBug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com.
0: Hot dog eating contests have become almost as quintessential as fireworks on the 4th of July. And competitors are serious about the battle for the top spot.
12: I had my tonsils out last September, so there's a lot more space in terms of just like airway ability. I'm Scott Detrow, a visit to a competitive eating contest and a broader look at why we do this.
11: That's
17: on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR,
8: Boston's NPR News Station.
11: I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger.